studying political science and minoring in human rights. Today, I'll be speaking with Sacramento Councilmember Katie Valenzuela about oil and gas wells in the state of California and the devastating health impacts they can have on surrounding communities. Councilmember Valenzuela grew up in Oildale, which is in Kern County, California, and developed asthma at a young age. Around 2.1 million people in California live within one mile of an active oil or gas well, as well as 17 million people nationally. We'll discuss legislative attempts to tackle this issue, keeping elected officials accountable for their voting records, as well as the council members' top priorities in her new position on the Sacramento City Council. Hi, council member. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I think an appropriate place to start might be your childhood growing up in Oildale. And maybe you could talk about what it was like growing up surrounded by some of the largest oil fields in the country and the health impacts it had on you and your community. Yeah, I think, you know, oil in Kern County is is such a normal part of daily life. We never really thought about it. You know, it was just, you know, the oil trucks would line up up the block for me every morning and idle to warm themselves up while they went and got breakfast at the gas station. Ironically, the best, best biscuits and gravy in my neighborhood work at the gas station. We were in a little bit of a food <laughs> desert, but you know, they would line up their trucks, they would get their breakfast, you know, all these diesel trucks, and they'd go out to the fields every morning. And, you know, I used to think that they were beautiful, you know, just like all the lights early in the morning. I used to think it was so neat. And, you know, the refineries um, at night, you know, I remember driving home and you just thought it looked kind of magical, like Christmas lights, you know, it was just a part of the community. Even the high school, my dad went to Bakersfield High School, which is one of the oldest high schools in Kern County. Uh, The mascot is the drillers. You know, it's just, it's such a part of the economy and who we were that it never even occurred to me, frankly, that that was that there was something wrong with living among it. Um, it was just, this is where people worked. This is, was a part of our region. This is what we do here. And um, in some respects, even some pride, right? It was just, you know, this is part of what we did um, for the community. And I also though, you know, grew up with really, really severe respiratory issues. Um, you know, I remember spending a lot of time, you know, every spring, every summer, we would go into the urgent care, go into the emergency room, get bronchitis. I mean, our pulmonologist was like, our doctor. I didn't know that that wasn't normal, you know, protocol for a kid to not just go to a normal pediatrician. I went to a pulmonologist whose specialty was, you know, lung health and respiratory issues. And I think I was five when my mom finally was in a waiting room and saw a magazine that basically said, hey, if you get bronchitis multiple times a year, if this happens, if this happens, like maybe you have this thing called asthma. And she like went into the doctor's office and was like, is this what's wrong with her? Like, it was still so new, right? In the nineties to think about like what asthma was, it wasn't really commonplace, um, but you know, we never connected the dots. I think it was just, again, this was something that a lot of kids my age went through. Um, 
And I got really used to it. I didn't really know what it was like to not have breathing issues when you ran to not have breathing issues when you worked out like so much so that remember in high school, I started getting tunnel vision when I ran and we went through all of these eye appointments thinking that something was wrong with my eyeballs. And it took like two, three appointments before one of my doctors said, Hey, how's your breathing when this happens? And they connected the dots that I was, it wasn't my eyesight. I was blacking out from lack of oxygen because I wasn't breathing well when I was running. Um, and I didn't even notice it because it was just, that's how it felt when I ran. I thought, you know, you run till you can't catch your breath anymore. And then you go sit down. It didn't occur to me that there was something wrong. Um, so it was very, it wasn't until I got to college that I really understood what all of this meant and kind of put it in context, but yeah, it was a really surreal looking back and now knowing what I know and realizing how connected all of that was. Um, but us just not knowing, you know, we just didn't open our windows. Having your windows open to get fresh air is not a thing really in Bakersfield because like we knew that the air quality wasn't good, but it never really connected to the oil industry or what was happening to me. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's all very intense. And you mentioned that um, not only were you affected by these health issues, but a lot of people that you knew. And I'm wondering whether there is kind of a general understanding now that this is, um, because you live so near oil fields or is the community still um, not aware of that connection? It's a mix, you know, there's been a lot more organizing in Kern County. So I think residents, there are pockets of residents who are becoming more aware of the connection and starting to express their frustration and concern for students and for families who are living near these wells or going to school near these wells. Um, but, you know, largely uh, there's still a big pocket. I was actually just thinking about um, on Instagram, I saw some friends from high school who are still in Kern County on my personal Instagram page. And yesterday I saw this, you know, pray for the oil industry, you know, with an oil well, with the sunset behind it, you know, like, <laughs> and they were like, you know, gosh, I just like, they're attacking us and we don't get it. You know, they really, and you know, one of the commenters from another friend from high school was like, yeah, you know, solar wind farms aren't great for the environment either. I think it's just for the bulk of the community, it's still seen as this attack on part of who we are and they aren't and part of that, I think, is coming from fear of the unknown. They don't really know what it would look like in Kern County if we weren't doing oil um, to the level that we are or at all. But I think the other part of it is really helping connect the dots still. Like, you know, there's this, you know, they, the workers have monitors on them when they work for toxics, right? And so it's just like one idea that an organizer had was, you know, if we just had a campaign showing a worker going home and having his monitor go off, for toxics, like maybe that would help connect the dot. Like this is like, it just still feels like for the bulk of the community, um, the perception is that our attacks on oil aren't fair and that, you know, we are just uh, being really biased, I guess, in our uh, front on fossil fuels. Um, and then there's really convincing industry messaging, right? That it's the safest here that it is anywhere. If you reduce production here, you're just going to drive it somewhere else where they're bad to women or LGBTQ people or whatever. And, um, you know, so there's that angle of it too, that industry, I think, has done a really good job of sort of counter messaging what the environmental movement has been saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is definitely a very complicated relationship if a lot of people's livelihoods depend on the oil um, I can understand why people wouldn't want to give that up. Um, and 
when I listened to um, an interview you did previously, you were talking about the difficulty coordinating with labor unions. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the essence of a union's job is to protect their members and to protect their members' jobs, right? So, I mean, we do have union, some union jobs um, out there, you know, especially when it comes to construction, the plumbers, pipe fitters, the building trades, um, when we're building new wells, when they're extending wells, there's union jobs in a portion of extraction. But the other frustrating part is that, you know, there's most of those oil field jobs are not union jobs. And that's something that like we've really struggled to quantify because we know that outside of building trades, like unless you're constructing something or deconstructing something, all of those other jobs, the day-to-day -day jobs, the monitoring, the moving around of stuff is all done by non-union employees. Um, it's without those hard numbers, which are really controlled by the industry, right? Like I can't, you know, really make them tell me stuff about who they're employing and why, but it's very, um, it's very frustrating because the trades in particular have really honed in on attacks on oil as an attack on labor. And I think I understand it from that union perspective of protect members, protect jobs. But in this case, these jobs are so dangerous. And part of what's the other side of this is the fact that the um, economy in Kern County is so underdeveloped. It's really monolithic. It's either oil or it's healthcare. I mean, there's a few other sectors here and there, but for the most part, if you don't get a job in oil or healthcare, you're kind of out of luck when it comes to employment. And so we've been trying to pitch this image of developing the economy. So this isn't the only option, but it, it's hard without more concrete steps that we're taking to ensure that those jobs will materialize for unions to really let go of the perception of jobs that they hope they're saving by opposing oil legislation. So it is really complicated, especially at the state level, because things are so much more politicized the further, the larger it gets. Um, I think at the local level, there's been some progress talking to locals about what this could mean and what this could look like. Um, but the thing that breaks my heart is always when the industry will bring up workers to testify again legislation it's always a worker who you know maybe they're formerly incarcerated maybe they never went to college you know and maybe they and they're talking about gosh this is the only job I could get where I could get a good wage to you know buy a house to help my kids go to school to take my family to Disneyland every once in a while and to me it's more of a really sad moment that this is the only job that they can get in Kern County that's a good paying job and that's the bigger question and issue in Kern County um, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Just as you said, the fact that the industry is so monolithic means that it's difficult if there is kind of general consensus that this is a dying industry, what happens when those jobs don't exist anymore? And how do we start preparing for the transition when we um, yeah. do need new jobs? Well, that's the reason that we talk about managed decline, right? It's like we know that these jobs, I mean, they've been doing layoffs in the fields for my entire life. You know, there's been layoffs and it's largely, you know, it's a global demand thing. It's a global price thing. You know, people get laid off. Sometimes they get rehired. Sometimes they don't. And we know that it will continue to decline if we do nothing today that these jobs will continue to decline. So common sense would say, let's plan for it. Let's be thoughtful about what phases out first, um, you know, the most hazardous wells, the most hazardous types of extraction, and let's make a plan for what these workers are going to do and what these regions are going to do to stay afloat economically. Like, but, and that's the part that's so frustrating to me is they'll say like, these are good jobs. I'm just like, I know people have been laid off. My aunt was laid off from the oil industry. She was in IT, right? And like, there's no other job for her. She had to early retire. There is no option for her. And I'm like, you know, this is something that's 
been happening, will continue to happen. I mean, I get that maybe climate policy might impact the pace or the location of it, but like, this is also an opportunity for us to plan for that. Um, and that to me just is good policy. Right, if we know something's gonna happen, it'd be great to prepare for it rather than to um, let it go until we don't have a plan and then what happens. So I'm wondering, just in order to give our listeners some context about um, active oil and gas wells in the state of California, um, how widespread is this issue throughout California and in which regions and counties is it most concentrated and are there the most oil fields? Yeah, there's um, trickle effects in a lot of places, especially coastal places. When you think about offshore drilling, um, Bureau of Land Management, you know, federal lands where there's some drilling happening, but the overwhelming uh, concentration of oil extraction is really Kern County and Los Angeles County. Um, and, you know, it's, again, there's Ventura County and Santa Barbara, there's other pockets of it, but for the most part, when we're talking about this large scale, um, you know, Kern County and LA County fields are some of the large, are the largest in the state and some of the largest in the country when it comes to oil extraction. Wow. Um, so I wonder if we could talk about efforts to address this issue legislatively, and I know you were part of the efforts to pass Assembly Bill 345, which was an environmental justice bill introduced to the Assembly in 2019, which would have established 2,500 foot setbacks between oil wells and homes, schools, and playgrounds. Um, can you talk about the bill and what happened to it in the legislature? Yeah, the bill was sponsored by Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment and Vision, which is a group of frontline groups who are fighting oil extraction in their communities that are largely also a part of like the larger Last Chance Alliance um, group in the state. But, you know, Vision and CRPE have been working on this issue. Um, I mean, I've talked to community members who've been asking questions about this for almost a decade at this point, you know, who saw oil wells pop up outside of schools and started seeing kids getting sick, started seeing staff getting sick and started asking questions about, okay, this, this feels like there's a cause here that we're missing and trying to understand what was happening and, and leading to this big fight for, you know, we should be, we should not be extracting next to homes and next to schools and next to places where communities are. Um, I mean, we know what there's the toxics and the chemicals that are actually involved in the oil extraction process. And there's all these secondary things that happen around wells, diesel engines, diesel trucks, um, drilling, and other things that also produce their own type of emissions that are bad for health. So, um, you know, this move for setbacks, you know, in Kern County, it's interesting because it's, um, the oil fields are so large and they're largely rural that really what we're talking about is moving the wells away, you know, and like, let's tackle production another time. This is just like, move the well away from the neighborhood and you can still tap into that oil field. You don't, you know, and hey, maybe there's some jobs for the building trades. We tried that angle too, right? It was like, who's going to move the wells and start the new wells? This could be okay for you, right? Um, but, you know, in L.A. County, it's obviously much more complex because there you have a lot more where it's like, you know, residential parcel, residential parcel and an oil well on that parcel in between where it's just right outside of someone's bedroom windows. And it's hard to see how we would do that in L.A. County without largely, you know, limiting where oil extraction could occur and if it could occur in LA County in general. Um, so the bill was very contentious for a lot of reasons, um, which is, um, it's just so frustrating because this dichotomy of, yeah, jobs versus health, 
and something we always talked about is like, you know, the workers that you're worried about also live in the communities that, that we're worried about and their kids are getting impacted by this too. And like, shouldn't we, like the fact that we're willing to pay such a high price in our children's and our family's health for a good job. Um, I get on the one hand, cause you know, you need to survive, you need to afford housing and food. I get that, but it's just such a messed up proposition. And the states really let this occur in places like Kern County through disinvestment and lack of good planning. Now we're doing better, right? Now the governor Newsom's team is really focused on Kern, but you know, this is a larger social injustice than just whether or not this bill is gonna end your job. But, you know, we uh, thought that was a two year bill we uh, died in the second house. We did make it through the first house. Um, you know, Democrats are the ones who killed this bill, which is something that, you know, we struggle with in California just because we have a supermajority. A lot of Democrats are still taking money from oil, taking money from interests that don't want to move aggressively on these questions. So um, we died a little bit spectacularly because we had built such great momentum that when the, it was killed in the Senate um, Natural Resources and Water Committee, um, by uh, Senator Hertzberg, Senator Hueso, and Senator Caballero, all three Democrats. It was a, a lot of people noticed. It created quite a splash because it's like, wait a minute, A, California is one of the few major oil producing states that doesn't have a setback on the books. You know, even Texas has some level of setback policy. So I'm like, come on, you know, if Texas can do it, like, I don't, you know, how can we say we're a climate leader when we can't do basic things to protect largely communities of color from the negative impacts of what we're continuing to do. So right. that's what the bill did. And, um, you know, now, you know, looking forward to the ongoing rulemaking, they'd started a rulemaking over a year and a half ago. They still haven't produced anything for us to say that this is going to result in setbacks. So we're continuing, continuing the fight because communities honestly have just waited long enough. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad to hear that the fight is continuing. I'm wondering those three Democrats that you mentioned who are all well-funded by the oil industry. Um, I'm wondering whether you think voters will keep them accountable in their upcoming elections in 2022, or uh, if not, what might be the reasons? You know, I think time sometimes really isn't our friend when it comes to these accountability campaigns, because, you know, I think if any of them had been running, and one of them was running for an office this fall that he lost. Um, Senator Hueso was running for supervisor in San Diego County and lost his election, um, in part due to what happened on this bill. But, you know, yeah. the, the, the more time that passes, the more this becomes sort of a distant memory. But something that I've been super impressed by with this bill that you don't always see when it comes to solidarity, right? You know, some of these members have tried to move forward and just keep doing the work and they're getting asked accountability questions about 345 last year by folks, some of whom didn't even work directly on 345, but are like, yeah, cool, you wanna to talk to me about this bill. What about, what did you do to the, <laughs> to the setbacks people? Because that was really not cool. And so that's been interesting to see because we've seen all of them in one way, shape or form, try to do something, whether it was stakeholder meetings, op-eds, you know, reaching out to different groups to try to repair what happened last year. And it's been really, it gives me hope for the infrastructure we've built and the capacity we've built in the movement that, you know, it's no longer acceptable 
I mean, when you look at the last 10 years of oil legislation in California, it's this really depressing story of Democrats really dropping the ball on climate, right? I mean, it's just, but I mean, they've been trying fracking ban bills, they've been trying different accountability bills, and they die almost every time. We've passed very few bills on oil in California. Um, and I think largely they felt like that was without consequence. Yeah, sure, Sierra Club would notice, or some of these folks would ding you in your scorecard, but you could just keep going. I think now, they're starting to see that that's no longer acceptable, especially when it comes to such a high priority environmental justice bill. And so that gives me a lot of hope for what I think we could try to accomplish this year. Yeah, that is super encouraging, especially as we enter this incredibly vital decade to fight the climate mm -hmm. crisis. I'm glad that accountability is starting to, to really become a focus. You mentioned that efforts are continuing legislatively, but is there any hope that Governor Newsom will do something about this issue? Can he use his executive powers in any way? I mean, there's there's always hope for this. Um, you know, he's uh, not of one mind on oil issues. You know, on the one hand, you'll hear him say really strong statements about oil and the future of California. And then on the other hand, you'll see more permits get issued or you'll see, um, you know, more delays. And um, I think what we're witnessing right now is a really existential moment in the administration. You know, he really stepped in, as you mentioned, at a really important time of leadership for climate in California and the, these big issues that previous administrations really hadn't tackled. Um, so, you know, he's done a lot when it comes to, I mean, he fired the head of the oil and gas industry that had conflicts of interest. You know, they announced this public health rulemaking, you know, they did a moratorium on new permits. Like he seems like he wants to do that, but then, you know, turn around and, you know, now the rulemaking has been delayed. Now the permit moratorium has been lifted now, like all this, all this. Um, so I think that they're really struggling to figure out the path forward. And I appreciate that they recognize it has to come with the jobs and economic strategy for, especially for Kern. LA, I think has a lot more options, but in Kern County, I mean, this really is it. If you don't have a strategy for this, then it could really be harmful to people. And we don't want that to happen. I appreciate that they're cognizant of that, but it feels like they're stuck. I'll be honest. It feels like they're stuck on this issue. And, um, and that's no more evident than the fact that, you know, he signed an executive order last fall one of the actions was that we would have a draft rule by the end of the year. And we all got called on December 31st saying, oops, uh, maybe in the spring. And it's like, <laughs> like just a month ago, you were saying you're going to have this rule. It's already drafted. We're working on it. And now it's gone again. Um, so I think they're stuck. And so I hope that he'll do something. I mean, he can, it's in his authority. We have plenty of lawyers who are telling him that it's possible, but I also, the more time that passes, I think the less patience I have for something to happen and the legislature can also do something. And I think is probably, unfortunately our more viable option right now and communities can't wait for the governor to do the right thing. And so we're, we're pursuing both, you know, we're going to keep our foot, you know, keep our pulse on what they're doing with the rulemaking, just like we're going to keep working the legislature. And if one or the other comes forward with a solution, great. Um, but in the meantime, something needs to happen this year. We can't go another year without telling communities that there's protection on the way that just, it's no longer acceptable. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad that you have multiple directions going and hopefully the legislature comes through if Newsom can't. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is a question that is just relating to the specifics of policy, but um, 
there is re research indicating that there may be negative health effects up to two kilometers away from the wells. And if that is the case, would a 2,500 foot setback even be enough, which is about half a mile? Yeah, you know, we say often that there really is no safe distance um, from these wells. We know that, you know, the research that's coming out is just the tip of the iceberg. It feels like the more research that gets done, the more we learn about how, what impacts happen and how far away sometimes they can happen. Um, I think 2,500 feet is probably, um, is, is a protective step though. I mean, there's a lot of very near term, like close by exposures that happen within 2,500 feet that are pretty extreme um, from cancers to preterm births, to miscarriages, to, you know, you name it, um, issues that happen. Um, it doesn't eliminate all of the harm and it doesn't absolve us of the larger questions of whether we should continue to be extracting oil at this rate anyways. Um, so, but it is a protective step, you know, in terms of the, the a lot of those near-term impacts could be eliminated with the 2,500 foot. We'd love for it to be further, but I think it's a good step in the right direction to try to alleviate some of the more extreme health impacts that we've been seeing. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, and additionally, it's something that disproportionately affects people of color and has purposely been put in places where people of color live. I know there was a concerted effort since the 1930s to redline um, black and brown communities in Los Angeles County so that they were kind of in the backyard of uh, these oil fields. Um, I, this issue could be fairly considered an example of environmental racism. And as someone in the policy world, with a specific focus on environmental justice, I was just wondering whether you sensed a shift after the protests over George Floyd and racial injustice this summer in terms of the attention being paid to the issue or um, other examples of environmental racism and whether the dialogue has shifted at all. I think it definitely has. I think, unfortunately, you know, something that I find similar to the members who cite things like the jobs impacts for why they're voting no, They'll, they just find another reason to vote no. You know, I think that's part of what we're trying to confront is the political side of, you know, some of these folks are going to vote no, regardless of what this bill says or does, because they are opposed to actions that restrict oil extraction. And, and that's been hard, right? Because you have Latino caucus members, you have Black caucus members, you have like these, these ethnic caucus members who should in theory, be the most concerned with the fact that this is disproportionately happening in brown and black communities, that brown and black workers are being negatively impacted on the job and at home, and that this is a step we need to take to make sure they're protected, um, that aren't motivated by that. And that is troubling, and it is frustrating because, you know, that should be in this day and age in 2021, you know, to know that we're consciously doing something that's hurting brown and black and BIPOC, just broadly communities, indigenous communities more severely than others um, should be a no brainer at this point. Okay, if that's happening, let's do something about it. But, you know, the political reality is, is hard. So we do bring that in. And there was a great New York Times um, opinion video really talking about that story in Los Angeles that, you know, really, I think was kind of, shocked some people because it was so well done. It was very, like, very pointed. This is what's happening. Um, but I think, you know, a few folks, that's why I see a lot of folks abstain something that happens. It's just as good as a no vote, but they don't want to be saying that they voted no. So they'll just not vote. Um, and that happened a lot in the legislative process. Even in the first house, we had a lot of members just like not vote on it, not because they were absent or as they weren't on the floor, but because they didn't want 
like they saw that budding thing and they just wanted to stay out of it. And so we're hopeful that as we keep building political momentum, that this will happen. But I wish it was enough to just be right on the facts, right? And to just be able to say, hey, let's disproportionately impact BIPOC communities, you know, children, you know, mothers, families, like we should be doing something about it, that they say, okay, but it's, you know, that's only part of it. I, uh, unfortunately, for better or for worse, we have to manage those politics, which is part of what's been building and part of what I think we've been building through this movement. As disappointed as we were that 345 didn't pass, that momentum, that group that's around that bill of people working on it just continues to grow. And so it's really uh, exciting to think about what we could accomplish um, in addition to setbacks, if we can keep that momentum and political pressure building. Amazing. Okay, well, that's really good to hear. That's kind of an inspirational uh, look at it, which I'm, I'm happy to hear. Um, I'd love to shift a little bit more to uh, your city council work in Sacramento, and I'd love to hear your journey to that position and um, kind of what your top priorities are for your term. Yeah, I think the you know, um, like a lot of folks after 2016, I re remember 2018 watching just this wave of powerhouse women running for office all over the country and here in Sacramento. And I think watching that really forced me to revisit something. I mean, people have been telling me to run for years and I was always happy to be the organizer, to be the person behind the scenes doing the lobbying and the advocacy. Um, but, you know, watching that really forced me to revisit those assumptions and in Sacramento, you know, we're the capital city. It's what we're known best for. Many people come to the capital and leave and think that's Sacramento, but there's some deep set issues happening here um, with, I mean, our rents are skyrocketing. We're still rising. One of the fastest growing rents in the country is in Sacramento. And, and even in COVID, it's still rising. Um, we have skyrocketing homelessness numbers. People are dying on our streets because we have no shelter for them. Um, even in these really cold, wet nights, uh, you know, we had, it felt like we had this crisis point and the more people were being displaced and the more momentum, sort of the more capitalist, let's just grow and develop new arenas and everybody will benefit the more you felt like this crisis moment was on our doorstep and I realized that I couldn't keep you know asking elected officials to understand my perspective they just didn't uh, they didn't have my perspective they didn't have my experience and that I really wanted to make change I needed to become one of those electeds we needed people in those seats who understood that Sacramento was great before, you know, Golden One Arena, that we have a really amazing diversity that's we're losing um, slowly but surely through these um, really deep, deep racial and economic injustices. So, um, you know, I decided to run, ran a whole grassroots campaign, did it while I was still environmental justice, lobbying, working on 345, leaving the floor, going to an endorsement meeting somewhere <laughs> across town. I mean, it was, it was a wild ride, but now that we're here and we're finally in, cause I did win in the March primary and then I had to wait, you know, nine months until I took oh. office in December. Cause I won in the primary, which wasn't unusual, um, that I had all this time to plan and think. And so, yeah, as we come in, I think more and more the environmental justice movement is trying to push us to think intersectionally, right? You know, just investing in a community 
who's been disinvested in and what we know now about gentrification and displacement of housing and especially with what's happening in Sacramento, you know, it's that these things are all interconnected, you know, that people care about where their food comes from, just like they care about the quality of their kid's school, just like they care about the road that they've got to go to get, you know, to where they want to go, just like they care about their housing and just like they care about the air they breathe and the fact that climate change needs to be confronted. And so how do we bring the community more in so that our policy reflect that and that we're not just saying, hey, we'll just do all this economic development stuff and you'll benefit, but that we're actually being intentional about who's defining benefit and who is going to benefit at the end of the day. Um, So my big priorities are definitely housing and homelessness. We have no real requirements for developers to build affordable units anymore. We have a very weak Form of rent control in Sacramento, you know, we tried to change it through a ballot measure that unfortunately didn't pass. So now we've got to figure out, especially after COVID, right? How are folks going to pay back this owed rent? You know, how are we going to keep people from losing their housing? I mean, these are really big questions that need to get answered soon. And moving forward, how do we make sure we have a protection and safety net for folks so that they don't lose their housing? So that's one way to prevent homelessness, right? Is to keep the inflow from slow, like slow it down with programs that are really thoughtful. Um, And then how do we help move people off the street, which is a big part of, you know, having not just the supportive programs, but, you know, the mental health programs, the substance abuse programs, the stuff that people need when you get to crisis so that the crisis doesn't become catastrophic for you, that you can actually find a way um, to stay housed and to stay stabilized and get the resources you need. Um, So, I mean, those are by far my top priorities, but secondarily, I think, you know, with our general plan update, we have this amazing opportunity to make our climate emergency resolution real. So Sacramento did make a promise um, through resolution that we were going to seek to be carbon neutral by 2030 as feasible. The mayor always makes me add that as feasible because he's not sure that we can get there, which is totally fine. But like, you know, we have a great publicly owned utility in SMUD. I mean, like we could really be figuring out some of these tough questions for suburban cities um, and really creating a model that like a Bakersfield or Fresno or somebody else could really try to follow based on what we're able to do. So I, you know, now is the time when we could think about, you know, how building decarbonization is going to work for existing buildings, you know, how we're going to help make a transportation system that actually means you don't need a single family car and then how we're going to make electric infrastructure real so that if you do need a car, you can get a zero emission car. I mean, these, these are big questions, but we, and as much as California has been a climate leader for the last, you know, 14, 15 years now, um, we still haven't figured that out. So um, I'm really excited to work on that at the council level while I'm also still working on some of that, obviously through the state stuff I'm doing. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a ton on your plate and um, (laughs) a lot of these crises were building before COVID and so now it's like a crisis on top of a crisis so I can't even imagine kind of what it's like to be a leader in this <laughs> day and age but um it's definitely glad- overwhelming but I mean like I was doing a keynote last night for a local women's leadership group and I told them I'm like you know it's a once in a lifetime pandemic and it's also a once in a lifetime opportunity like we're going to be getting workforce money we're going to get business money we'll be getting rent assistance money like you know if we really rebuild and center these inequities and center the communities that have been left behind women people of color lgbtq plus it's like we could actually confront that as we rebuild. And that's not an opportunity that comes along every day. And so I think my biggest source of anxiety is that we won't 
we won't move quickly enough to take advantage of that. Um, so I'm thrilled that I'm in a position and hopefully have a role because, you know, if they're going to do a big transit stimulus, like I want to figure out how we make it more so that more people are writing them before the pandemic. And so there's, there's a real opportunity coming out of this, um, that, that is exciting, but it is also a little daunting because it's like, ooh, this is going to be, I have to really confront our old norms here. And that's not something that institutions like to do easily. So <laughs> there's no going back to normal. We need to make a new normal. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that description. And I'm kind of wondering uh, in a way to wrap up a little bit, um, whether there are any actionable steps listeners can take to help combat the issue of oil fields, um, compromising the health of Californians, or just to advocate for climate change action in California more broadly? Yeah, there will be, I mean, there's going to be a lot of legislation this year, even besides setbacks. You know, there's folks working on um, bills regarding fracking, there's folks working on bills regarding orphan and idle wells. And so I think the one thing that anybody listening could do is to start calling California senators and assembly members and making sure that they're clear in their commitment to follow through, that we need after over a decade, I mean, there's a, we're working on a scorecard right now. We're really looking at the last 10 years of oil policy in California. And the story is like a little teaser that this is gonna tell us that we really haven't done much and like we're overdue um, on taking action on oil and gas in California. And we could really figure this out this year. So I think calling legislators to really push them to commit to doing something this year on setbacks, to doing something this year on extraction, because um, we need that pressure from the legislative branch. But it also doesn't absolve. I think there will be opportunities for public comment. So Cal Jim is the name of the agency doing the rulemaking. It's the Geological Energy Management. I think is what GEM stands for, um, mm -hmm. but they're doing the public health and safety rulemaking and there's opportunities for public comments. So if you pay attention to CRPE and Vision Social, you'll see them put out calls for submit comments. Um, we had 40,000 people submit comments the first round, overwhelmingly supporting setbacks. And that matters, you know, it matters that regardless of where you live, if you're sending in comments like the agencies, I mean, they said that almost every meeting I was in for the next few months after that, they're like, we got 40,000 comments. I'm like, wow. Yes, you did. Let's break that record next time, right? So keeping following the social media as a vision of Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment so that you can stay in the loop when there's opportunities to retweet, you know, on the COVID, our advocacy is so limited. We really lean on Twitter storms. We really lean on some of these social media vehicles. So following someone like Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment so that you can be in the loop when those things are happening so that you can help and push your legislators or push even legislators in other parts of the state and kind of keep that pressure on them they do notice. I hear them say things about, they know when there's tweet storms happening about them because um, they'll say things to me. So it's like, you know, it works as much as it seems weird to just retweet something or to send it out there. It does make an impact when you're tagging members or decision makers in the administration saying, what are you doing? You know, we want you to do more. Let's go. So I think following Center Race, Poverty, and the Environment on Twitter and um, yeah, pushing your legislators to make sure they know who you are and that you want them to do something on oil and gas this year and that would be really helpful. Thank you so much, Councilmember Valenzuela, for taking the time to have a conversation with me about oil wells and environmental justice in California. To learn more about any of the topics we discussed today, and to follow the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment on social media, check out the links in the show notes. For more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 
To keep human rights close to your home, you're listening to The Rights Pod.